Book two, part eight of Herodotus's Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Histories, volume one, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus. Translated by A. D. Godley. Book two, part eight. Paragraphs. 151 to 182. Now the twelve kings were just, and in time came to sacrifice in Hephaestus's temple. On the last day of the feast, as they were about to pour libations, the high priest brought out the golden vessels, which they commonly used for this. But he counted wrongly, and had only eleven for the twelve. So the last in line, Psammeticus, as he had no vessel, took off his bronze helmet, and held it out, and poured the libation with it. All the kings were accustomed to wear helmets, and were then helmeted. It was not in guile, then, that Psammeticus held out his headgear, but the rest perceived what Psammeticus had done, and remembered the oracle that promised the sovereignty of all Egypt to whoever poured a libation from a vessel of bronze. Therefore, though they considered Psammeticus not deserving of death, for they examined him and found that he had acted without intent, they decided to strip him of most of his power, and to chase him away into the marshes, and that he was not to concern himself with the rest of Egypt. This Psammeticus had formerly been an exile in Syria, where he had fled from Sabacos the Ethiopian, who killed his father Nekos. Then, when the Ethiopian departed, because of what he saw in a dream, the Egyptians of the district of Sais brought him back from Syria. Psammeticus was king for the second time, when he found himself driven away into the marshes by the eleven kings because of the helmet. Believing, therefore, that he had been abused by them, he meant to be avenged on those who had expelled him. He sent to inquire in the town of Buto, where the most infallible oracle in Egypt is. The oracle answered that he would have vengeance when he saw men of bronze coming from the sea. Psammeticus did not in the least believe that men of bronze would come to aid him. But after a short time, Ionians and Carians, voyaging for plunder, were forced to put in on the coast of Egypt, where they disembarked in their armour of bronze. And an Egyptian came into the marsh country and brought news to Psammeticus, for he had never before seen armoured men that men of bronze had come from the sea, and were foraging in the plain. Psammeticus saw in this the fulfilment of the oracle. He made friends with the Ionians and Carians, and promised them great rewards if they would join him, and, having won them over, deposed the eleven kings with these allies and those Egyptians who volunteered. Having made himself master of all Egypt, he made the southern outer court of Hephaestus's temple at Memphis, and built facing this a court for Apis, where Apis is kept and fed whenever he appears. This court has an inner colonnade all around it, and many cut figures. The roof is held up by great statues, twenty feet high, for pillars. Apis in Greek is Epaphus. To the Ionians and Carians who helped him, Psammeticus gave places to live in, called the Camps, opposite each other on either side of the Nile. And besides this, he paid them all that he had promised. 
Moreover, he put Egyptian boys in their hands to be taught Greek, and from these, who learnt the language, are descended the present-day Egyptian interpreters. The Ionians and Carians lived for a long time in these places, which are near the sea, on the arm of the Nile called the Pelusian, a little way below the town of Bubastis. Long afterwards, King Amasis removed them, and settled them at Memphis to be his guard against the Egyptians. It is a result of our communication with these settlers in Egypt, the first of foreign speech to settle in that country, that we Greeks have exact knowledge of the history of Egypt from the reign of Psammeticus onwards. There still remained in my day, in the places out of which the Ionians and Carians were turned, the winches for their ships and the ruins of their houses. This is how Psammeticus got Egypt. I have often mentioned the Egyptian oracle, and shall give an account of this, as it deserves. This oracle is sacred to Leto, and is situated in a great city by the Sebanitic arm of the Nile, on the way up from the sea. Buto is the name of the city where this oracle is. I have already mentioned it. In Buto there is a temple of Apollo and Artemis. The shrine of Leto, where the oracle is, is itself very great, and its outer court is sixty feet high. But what caused me the most wonder among the things apparent there I shall mention. In this precinct is the shrine of Leto, the height and length of whose walls is all made of a single stone slab. Each wall has an equal length and height, namely seventy feet. Another slab makes the surface of the roof, the cornice of which is seven feet broad. Thus, then, the shrine is the most marvellous of all the things that I saw in this temple, but of things of second rank, the most wondrous is the island called Chemis. This lies in a deep and wide lake near the temple at Buto, and the Egyptians say that it floats. I never saw it float or move at all, and I thought it a marvellous tale that an island should truly float. However that may be, there is a great shrine of Apollo on it, and three altars stand there. Many palm-trees grow on the island, and other trees too, some yielding fruit, and some not. This is the story that the Egyptians tell to explain why the island moves. That on this island, that did not move before, Leto, one of the eight gods who first came to be, who was living at Buto, where this oracle of hers is, taking charge of Apollo from Isis, hid him for safety in this island, which is now said to float, when Typhon came hunting through the world, keen to find the son of Osiris. Apollo and Artemis were, they say, children of Dionysus and Isis, and Leto was made their nurse and preserver. In Egyptian, Apollo is Horus, Demeter, Isis, Artemis, Bubastis. It was from this legend, and no other, that Aeschylus, son of Euphorion, took a notion which is in no poet before him, that Artemis was the daughter of Demeter. For this reason the island was made to float. So they say, Psammeticus ruled Egypt for fifty-three years, twenty-nine of which he spent before Azotus, a great city in Syria, besieging it until he took it. Azotus held out against a siege longer than any city of which we know. Psammeticus had a son, Nekos, who became king of Egypt. It was he who began building the canal into the Red Sea, which was finished by Darius the Persian. This is four days' voyage in length, 
and it was dug wide enough for two triremes to move in it, rowed abreast. It is fed by the Nile, and is carried from a little above Bubastis by the Arabian town of Patumus. It issues into the Red Sea. Digging began in the part of the Egyptian plain nearest to Arabia. The mountains that extend to Memphis, the mountains where the stone quarries are, come close to this plain. The canal is led along the foothills of these mountains in a long reach from west to east. Passing then into a ravine, it bears southward out of the hill country towards the Arabian Gulf. Now the shortest and most direct passage from the northern to the southern or Red Sea is from the Cassian promontory, the boundary between Egypt and Syria, to the Arabian Gulf, and this is a distance of one hundred and twenty-five miles, neither more nor less. This is the most direct route, but the canal is far longer, inasmuch as it is more crooked. In Nekos's reign, a hundred and twenty thousand Egyptians died digging it. Nekos stopped work, stayed by a prophetic utterance that he was toiling beforehand for the barbarian. The Egyptians call all men of other languages barbarians. Nekos, then, stopped work on the canal, and engaged in preparations for war. Some of his ships of war were built on the northern sea, and some in the Arabian Gulf, by the Red Sea coast. The winches for landing these can still be seen. He used these ships when needed, and with his land army met and defeated the Syrians at Magdolus, taking the great Syrian city of Caditis after the battle. He sent to Branchidae of Miletus, and dedicated there to Apollo the garments in which he won these victories. Then he died, after a reign of sixteen years, and his son Psamis reigned in his place. While this Psamis was king of Egypt, he was visited by ambassadors from Elis, the Eleans boasting that they had arranged the Olympic Games with all the justice and fairness in the world, and claiming that even the Egyptians, although the wisest of all men, could not do better. When the Eleans came to Egypt and announced why they had come, Psamis assembled the Egyptians reputed to be wisest. These assembled and learnt all that the Eleans were to do regarding the games. After explaining this, the Eleans said that they had come to learn whether the Egyptians could discover any juster way. The Egyptians deliberated, and then asked the Eleans if their own citizens took part in the contests. The Eleans answered that they did. All Greeks from Elis or elsewhere might contend. Then the Egyptians said that in establishing this rule they fell short of complete fairness, for there is no way that you will not favour your own townsfolk in the contest and wrong the stranger. If you wish, in fact, to make just rules, and have come to Egypt for that reason, you should admit only strangers to the contest, and not Eleans. Such was the counsel of the Egyptians to the Eleans. Psamis reigned over Egypt for only six years. He invaded Ethiopia, and immediately thereafter died. And Apries, the son of Psamis, reigned in his place. He was more fortunate than any former king, except his great-grandfather, Psameticus, during his rule of twenty-five years, during which he sent an army against Sidon, and fought at sea with the king of Tyre. But when it was fated that evil should overtake him, the cause of it was something that I will now deal with briefly, 
and at greater length in the Libyan part of this history. Apries sent a great force against Cyrene, and suffered a great defeat. The Egyptians blamed him for this, and rebelled against him, for they thought that Apries had knowingly sent his men to their doom, so that after their perishing in this way, he might be the more secure in his rule over the rest of the Egyptians. Bitterly angered by this, those who returned home, and the friends of the slain, openly revolted. Hearing of this, Apries sent Amasis to dissuade them. When Amasis came up with the Egyptians, he exhorted them to desist. But, as he spoke, an Egyptian came behind him, and put a helmet on his head, saying it was the token of royalty. And Amasis showed that this was not displeasing to him, for after being made king by the rebel Egyptians, he prepared to march against Apries. When Apries heard of it, he sent against Amasis an esteemed Egyptian, named Patarbamis, one of his own court, instructing him to take the rebel alive, and bring him into his presence. When Patarbamis came, and summoned Amasis, Amasis, who was on horseback, rose up and farted, telling the messenger to take that back to Apries. But when, in spite of this, Patarbemis insisted that Amasis obey the king's summons, and go to him, Amasis answered that he had long been preparing to do just that, and Apries would find him above reproach, for he would present himself and bring others. Hearing this, Patarbemis could not mistake Amasis. He saw his preparations, and hastened to depart, the more quickly to make known to the king what was going on. When Apries saw him return without Amasis, he did not stop to reflect, but in his rage and fury had Patarbemis's ears and nose cut off. The rest of the Egyptians, who were until now Apries's friends, seeing this outrage done to the man who was most prominent among them, changed sides without delay, and offered themselves to Amasis. Learning of this, too, Apries armed his guard, and marched against the Egyptians. He had a bodyguard of Carians and Ionians, thirty thousand of them, and his royal palace was in the city of Sais, a great and marvellous place. Apries's men marched against the Egyptians, and so did Amasis's men against the foreigners. So they both came to Momemphis, and were going to make trial of one another. The Egyptians are divided into seven classes. Priests, warriors, cowherds, swineherds, merchants, interpreters, and pilots. There are this many classes, each named after its occupation. The warriors are divided into Calasiries and Hermotubies, and they belong to the following districts, for all divisions in Egypt are made according to districts. The Hermotubies are from the districts of Busiris, Sais, Chemis, and Papremis, the island called Prosopitis, and half of Natho, from all of these. Their number, at its greatest, attained to a hundred and sixty thousand. None of these has learnt any common trade. They are free to follow the profession of arms only. The Calasiries are from the districts of Thebes, Bubastis, Aphthis, Tanis, Mendes, Sebedis, Athribis, Pharbaithis, Thmuis, Onufis, Anitis, Maikforis. This last is an island opposite the city of Bubastis. From all these. 
Their number, at its greatest, attained to two hundred and fifty thousand men. These two may practice no trade but war, which is their hereditary calling. Now, whether this too the Greeks have learnt from the Egyptians, I cannot confidently judge. I know that in Thrace and Scythia, and Persia, and Lydia, and nearly all foreign countries, those who learn trades are held in less esteem than the rest of the people, and those who have least to do with artisans' work, especially men who are free to practice the art of war, are highly honoured. This much is certain, that this opinion, which is held by all Greeks, and particularly by the Lacedaemonians, is of foreign origin. It is in Corinth that artisans are held in least contempt. The warriors were the only Egyptians, except the priests, who had special privileges. For each of them an untaxed plot of twelve acres was set apart. This acre is a square of a hundred Egyptian cubits each way, the Egyptian cubit being equal to the Samian. These lands were set apart for all. It was never the same men who cultivated them, but each in turn. A thousand Calasirias, and as many Hermotubias, were the king's annual bodyguard. These men, besides their lands, each received a daily provision of five minai's weight of roast grain, two minai of beef, and four cups of wine. These were the gifts received by each bodyguard. When Apries, with his guards, and Amasis, with the whole force of Egyptians, came to the town of Momemphis, they engaged, and though the foreigners fought well, they were vastly outnumbered, and therefore were beaten. Apries, they say, supposed that not even a god could depose him from his throne, so firmly did he think he was established. And now, defeated in battle, and taken captive, he was brought to Sais, to the royal dwelling, which belonged to him once, but now belonged to Amasis. There he was kept alive for a while in the palace, and well treated by Amasis. But presently the Egyptians complained that there was no justice in keeping alive one who was their own and their king's bitterest enemy. Whereupon Amasis gave Apries up to them, and they strangled him, and then buried him in the burial place of his fathers. This is in the temple of Athena, very near to the sanctuary on the left of the entrance. The people of Sais buried within the temple precinct all kings who were natives of their district. The tomb of Amasis is farther from the sanctuary than the tomb of Apries and his ancestors, yet it too is within the temple court. It is a great colonnade of stone, richly adorned, the pillars made in the form of palm trees. In this colonnade are two portals, and the place where the coffin lies is within their doors. There is also at Sais the burial place of one whose name I think it impious to mention in speaking of such a matter. It is the temple of Athena, behind and close to the length of the wall of the shrine. Moreover, great stone obelisks stand in the precinct, and there is a lake nearby, adorned with a stone margin, and made in a complete circle. It is, as it seemed to me, the size of the lake at Delos, which they call the Round Pond. On this lake they enact by night the story of the gods' sufferings, a rite which the Egyptians call the mysteries. I could say more about this, for I know the truth, but let me preserve a discreet silence. Let me preserve a discreet silence, too, concerning the rite of Demeter, which the Greeks call Thesmophoria, 
except as much of it as I am not forbidden to mention. The daughters of Danaus were those who brought this rite out of Egypt, and taught it to the Pelasgian women. Afterwards, when the people of the Peloponnese were driven out by the Dorians, it was lost, except in so far as it was preserved by the Arcadians, the Peloponnesian people which was not driven out, but left in its home. After Apries was deposed, Amasis became king. He was from a town called Silph, in the district of Sais. Now at first he was scorned, and held in low regard by the Egyptians, on the ground that he was a common man, and of no high family. But presently he won them over by being shrewd and not arrogant. He had among his countless treasures a golden washbowl, in which he and all those who ate with him were accustomed to clean their feet. This he broke in pieces, and out of it made a god's image, which he set in a most conspicuous spot in the city. And the Egyptians came frequently to this image, and held it in great reverence. When Amasis learnt what the town folk were doing, he called the Egyptians together, and told them that the image had been made out of the washbowl, in which the Egyptians had once vomited and urinated and cleaned their feet, but which now they greatly revered. Now then, he said, I have fared like the washbowl, since, if before I was a common man, still I am your king now, and he told them to honour and show respect for him. The following was how he scheduled his affairs. In the morning, until the hour when the market-place filled, he readily conducted whatever business was brought to him. The rest of the day he drank and joked at the expense of his companions, and was idle and playful. But this displeased his friends, who admonished him thus, O king, you do not conduct yourself well by indulging too much in vulgarity. You, a celebrated man, ought to conduct your business throughout the day, sitting on a celebrated throne, and thus the Egyptians would know that they are governed by a great man, and you would be better spoken of. As it is, what you do is by no means kingly. But he answered them like this. Men that have bows, string them when they must use them, and unstring them when they have used them. Were bows kept strung for ever, they would break, and so could not be used when needed. Such, too, is the nature of man. Were one to be always at serious work, and not permit oneself a bit of relaxation, he would go mad or idiotic before he knew it. I am well aware of that, and give each of the two its turn. Such was his answer to his friends. It is said that even when Amasis was a private man, he was fond of drinking and joking, and was not at all a sober man, and that when his drinking and pleasure-seeking cost him the bare necessities, he would go around stealing. Then, when he contradicted those who said that he had their possessions, they would bring him to whatever place of divination was nearby, and sometimes the oracles declared him guilty, and sometimes they acquitted him. When he became king, he did not take care of the shrines of the gods who had acquitted him of theft, or give them anything for maintenance, or make it his practice to sacrifice there, for he knew them to be worthless, and their oracles false. But he took scrupulous care of the gods who had declared his guilt, considering them to be gods in very deed, and their oracles infallible. Amasis made a marvellous outer court for the temple of Athena, at Sais, far surpassing all in its height and size, 
and in the size and quality of the stone blocks. Moreover, he set up huge images and vast man-headed sphinxes, and brought enormous blocks of stone besides for the building. Some of these he brought from the stone quarries of Memphis. The largest came from the city of Elephantine, twenty days' journey distant by river from Sais. But what I admire most of his works is this. He brought from Elephantine a shrine made of one single block of stone. Its transport took three years, and two thousand men had the carriage of it, all of them pilots. This chamber is thirty-five feet long, twenty-three feet wide, thirteen feet high. These are the external dimensions of the chamber, which is made of one block. Its internal dimensions are thirty-one feet long, twenty feet wide, eight feet high. It stands at the entrance of the temple. It was not dragged within, so they say, because, while it was being drawn, the chief builder complained aloud of the great expense of time and his loathing of the work, and Amasis, taking this to heart, would not let it be drawn further. Some also say that a man, one of those who heaved up the shrine, was crushed by it, and therefore it was not dragged within. Furthermore, Amasis dedicated, beside monuments of marvellous size in all the other temples of note, the huge image that lies supine before Hephaestus's temple at Memphis. This image is seventy-five feet in length. There stand on the same base, on either side of the great image, two huge statues hewn from the same block, each of them twenty feet high. There is at Sais another stone figure of the like size, supine, as is the figure at Memphis. It was Amasis, too, who built the great and most marvellous temple of Isis at Memphis. It is said that in the reign of Amasis, Egypt attained to its greatest prosperity, in respect of what the river did for the land, and the land for its people, and that the number of inhabited cities in the country was twenty thousand. It was Amasis also who made the law that every Egyptian declare his means of livelihood to the ruler of his district annually, and that omitting to do so, or to prove that one had a legitimate livelihood, be punishable with death. Solon the Athenian got this law from Egypt, and established it among his people. May they always have it, for it is a perfect law. Amasis became a Philhellene, and besides other services which he did for some of the Greeks, he gave those who came to Egypt the city of Naucratis to live in, and to those who travelled to the country without wanting to settle there, he gave lands where they might set up altars and make holy places for their gods. Of these the greatest and most famous and most visited precinct is that which is called the Hellenion, founded jointly by the Ionian cities of Chios, Tios, Phokia, and Cladzomenae, the Dorian cities of Rhodes, Cnidus, Halicarnassus, and Pharzelis, and one Aeolian city, Mytilene. It is to these that the precinct belongs, and these are the cities that furnish overseers of the trading port. If any other cities advance claims, they claim what does not belong to them. The Aeginetans made a precinct of their own, sacred to Zeus, and so did the Samians for Hera, and the Milesians for Apollo. Now Kratis was in the past the only trading port in Egypt. Whoever came to any other mouth of the Nile had to swear that he had not come intentionally, 
and had then to take his ship and sail to the Canobic mouth, or if he could not sail against contrary winds, he had to carry his cargo in barges around the delta until he came to Naucratis. In such esteem was Naucratis held. When the Amphictyons paid three hundred talents to have the temple that now stands at Delphi finished, as that which was formerly there burnt down by accident, it was the Delphians' lot to pay a fourth of the cost. They went about from city to city collecting gifts, and got most from Egypt, for Amasis gave them a thousand talents' weight of astringent earth, and the Greek settlers in Egypt twenty minae. Amasis made friends and allies of the people of Cyrene, and he decided to marry from there, either because he had his heart set on a Greek wife, or for the sake of the Corsairians' friendship. In any case, he married a certain Ladike, said by some to be the daughter of Batus, of Arcesilaus, by others, and by others again of Critobulus, an esteemed citizen of the place. But whenever Amasis lay with her, he became unable to have intercourse, though he managed with every other woman. And when this happened repeatedly, Amasis said to the woman called Ladike, Woman, you have cast a spell on me, and there is no way that you shall avoid perishing the most wretchedly of all women. So Ladike, when the king did not relent at all, although she denied it, vowed in her heart to Aphrodite that if Amasis could have intercourse with her that night, since that would remedy the problem, she would send a statue to Cyrene to her. And after the prayer, immediately Amasis did have intercourse with her. And whenever Amasis came to her thereafter, he had intercourse, and he was very fond of her after this. Ladike paid her vow to the goddess. She had an image made, and sent it to Cyrene, where it stood safe until my time, facing outside the city. Cambyses, when he had conquered Egypt, and learnt who Ladike was, sent her away to Cyrene unharmed. Moreover, Amasis dedicated offerings in Hellas. He gave to Cyrene a gilt image of Athena, and a painted picture of himself. To Athena of Lindus, two stone images, and a marvellous linen breastplate. And to Hera in Samos, two wooden statues of himself, that were still standing in my time, behind the doors in the great shrine. The offerings in Samos were dedicated because of the friendship between Amasis and Polycrates, son of Iarches. What he gave to Lindus was not out of friendship for anyone, but because the temple of Athena in Lindus is said to have been founded by the daughters of Danaus, when they landed there in their flight from the sons of Egyptus. Such were Amasis's offerings. Moreover, he was the first conqueror of Cyprus, which he made tributary to himself. End of Book Two